Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. The first argument sitting of the term is in the books. We're going to talk to Amira Lee, one of the lawyers who argued this week in Thompson against Clark. We'll also look back on the state secrets and Boston Marathon bomber arguments. Before we go to the interview, Kimberly, we got some news technically from the Biden Supreme Court Commission, some draft materials that, um, well, what do they do exactly? Hmm, good question. So the commission released some of its findings yesterday ahead of a public meeting that they're actually holding right now. We're recording this. It is about 1030 on Friday. Now, if the people were looking for a strong endorsement or condemnation of some specific court reforms, uh, they're going to be quite disappointed. Uh, one of the sources for a story that we ran yesterday um, summed it up pretty, um, pretty well, saying this was more like a book report uh, than anything else. The commission is looking at a number of so-called court reforms, one being, you know, adding more seats, which the commission seems pretty cold on. Um, didn't seem like they thought that that was a very good idea, although they do speak more favorably about other reforms like term limits or more transparency on the so-called shadow docket. Um, but all in all, I think we've seen liberal groups really condemning this report as kind of a gift to Republicans who can point to it um, and, you know, kind of pick out all the bad points that the commission makes about court expansion. And I think that's right. Um, If you look at the, you know, just the makeup of the commission, there are a lot of professors, a few practicing attorneys, um, but not very many people who, you know, you think might support the idea of something as transformative as court expansion or some of the more bolder um, court reforms. And I think that's really a reflection of President Biden himself. You know, when he was on the campaign, trail he too didn't seem to be you know um someone who was endorsing um, major court reform and i think that has to go back to his time on the senate judiciary committee and you know this real concern for you know the institution of the supreme court and what these reforms might do so we'll have a little bit more um, following up today um, on the commission meeting and then there'll be a final report and what exactly is going to happen with this report yeah who knows um but i think it's pretty safe to say that this isn't going to lead to like 14 or 15 justices on the supreme court um we could see some pretty minor court reforms but i would I wouldn't expect to see anything really transformative. Yeah, it seems like the whole point of this commission from the start, from Biden's perspective, has been to allow him to kick the can down the road and not actually have to take a position, which he doesn't want to do. So effectively not endorsing court reform without having to come out and say that and maybe upset some of the more progressive votes that he wants to keep. Yeah, I mean, this whole report, you know, it's all like, well, on the one hand, X, Y, and Z, on the other hand, X, Y, and Z, and, you know, no real conclusion. Well, we could take all day talking about this thing that doesn't really do anything, but uh, maybe we can get on to the interview with Amir. Before we bring him on, I'll give just a quick refresher on the Thompson case. We talked about this one on our most recent sneak peek episode. It's about what plaintiffs need to show to sue police in federal court after their criminal cases are dismissed. 
specifically when they're alleging unreasonable seizure pursuant to legal process or what have been called malicious prosecution claims in these cases. The question is whether plaintiffs need to show the criminal case ended in a manner not inconsistent with innocence or whether they need to show it ended in a manner that affirmatively indicates innocence. Basically, whether people need to prove their innocence before they can sue. Hmm, could have fooled me. And then after listening to the argument, it sure doesn't seem like that's what it was about. Exactly. And so hopefully we'll get to talk to Amir about that and what it was like to argue during these uncertain times. Amir Ali is director of the MacArthur Justice Center's D.C. office and deputy director of its Supreme Court and appellate practice. He represents victims of civil rights violations and criminal defendants in courts across the country, including the Supreme Court. He also teaches Harvard Law School's Criminal Justice Appellate Clinic. He's joining us today after arguing just a few days ago in Thompson against Clark on behalf of the petitioner, Larry Thompson. Amir, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So the justices were back in the courtroom for the first time in over a year and a half. What was it like to be um, back doing the arguments in person? It was a relief. Uh, I think nothing matches kind of the in-person back and forth you get during these oral arguments, and especially in the Supreme Court versus other courts, because, you know, you're having a conversation with nine others at the same time. Right. And, you know, one thing that I think is really interesting and hasn't happened yet, and hopefully it won't, but the court has an option. You know, it requires attorneys to get tested before the argument. um, And then there's kind of this option that if you test positive, you'll have to go remotely. And I'm just wondering, how does somebody prepare for that? That seems like you're preparing now for like two different arguments. Yeah, I think I think the answer is that you kind of don't and you just hope for the best. (laughs) Uh, you know, I, it it does introduce some, some, you know, potential wrench and, uh, some stress. I mean, I had no reason to think that I would test positive for COVID the morning before and certainly was very hopeful that I, I wouldn't, but you are thinking, you know, if, if this comes back positive, I've suddenly got to, uh, set up a station for myself to argue with, you know, uh, in front of nine judges over the phone and, you know, because um, as I understand it, at least the court wasn't planning to go back to, um, you know, the seriatim questioning for the whole thing. It was still going to be a free-for-all. Yeah, that's one thing that I've noticed now that the court has come back with kind of what I've been calling a hybrid model where it continues kind of what it was doing pre-pandemic. It's, you know, kind of this free-for-all where every justice interrupts you um, every 10 seconds. Um, and then, you know, at the end, giving the justices an opportunity, what I before they started hearing arguments, what I like to call Justice Thomas, do you have any questions round? Um, but uh, it's it seems like that's really kind of made arguments longer. And it seems like that's even more preparation for you guys to do. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, you, you described it as, as preparing for two arguments at the same time. And I think actually even being in person under this structure requires you to because you have the old free-for-all that we're all used to preparing for, you know, for the years before COVID. And then you've got this seriatim questioning, and it's it's a little bit different in how you respond. Uh, and, you know, in one instance, you really are, you know, talking to all nine justices with the possibility of any of them jumping in based on what you're saying. And in the other, you know, you're kind of locked in with one justice, still hopefully, you know, keeping the others in mind who are listening, but you're locked in in a way where only that justice will follow up with you. So you've got to prepare for kind of both of those types of questioning 
Yeah, although I noticed in at least one case, um, Justice Alito jumped in after originally saying, you know, during the individual questioning, I don't have any questions, but I think he wanted to respond to something that Justice Kagan and Sotomayor had said. So he kind of jumped in and I was like, oh, good, we'll just just elongate this forever and sit here for five hours. Um, kind of going back to old school arguments the way they were back in the day. Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you was something new now is that if you're arguing the second case, you're not actually in the courtroom for the first one. You have to, you know, wait in the lawyer's room. Tell us a little bit about this process. Yeah, sure. I mean, I should say at the outset, I think the court, you know, adopted really thoughtful and careful COVID procedures. And I think, you know, this is a situation where COVID has turned like clerk's offices around the country into people who have to become experts on public health. And I think the Supreme Court clerk's office deserves a lot of credit for running a safe protocol for everyone involved, the justices, the court employees, the advocates, and and you all uh, who sit in the, and now sit in the public, uh, but the press folks who are allowed in. Um, yeah, you know, not sitting in uh, for the first argument creates a little bit of a weird dynamic, especially if you're petitioner's counsel for the second argument, because, you know, ordinarily you'd kind of be in the courtroom sitting behind the first attorneys who are arguing you'd kind of be settled in but in this structure um the way it worked was we were all waiting outside the courtroom and after the lawyers from the first argument all finished and you know the press all shuffled out to give their you know instant reports on what had happened in the first argument uh i have to walk in and you know the expectation is you basically walk straight to the podium and get going and so there's this kind of you know entry and entrance where all nine justices are on the bench just kind of staring at me thinking like <laughs> come on move a little faster let's get this going uh, and i gotta walk up and say you know mr chief justice and may it please the court and get going mr ali thank you mr chief justice and may it please the court um, so that was interesting not an experience i had had before all right well um with that jordan you want to talk about a little bit about the arguments sure so amir getting into the actual case here we have these two standards in the circuits over what plaintiffs need to show in order to sue police in federal court. Why is this an important issue in your view? Yeah, thanks for giving me the chance to talk about that. It's easy to get lost in all of the legal lingo of this case. Um, look, the bottom line is this, that the case is about the circumstance in which a police officer fabricates evidence against someone who is innocent. Um, and that's as bad as it sounds. It's you've got an, you know someone going about their daily life and a cop wrongfully incriminates them in a crime. And that has major consequences. You know, it's not just being arrested by that officer or whatever kind of happens in the immediate um, encounter with the officer who's, who's doing this, but the false evidence often results in you being charged with a crime. Uh, and that means potentially being detained through the course of a whole criminal proceeding, uh, you know, uh, potentially being under the supervision of the state while those false charges are pending, showing up to hearings on the false charges, and having this on your record forever, right? I mean, you you may well be criminally tried and even being being convicted. And this case is about when you can bring a civil action against the police officer who's done that to you. Um, try to hold the officer accountable for pursuing the fabricated charges that have, you know, really upended your life, as was the case uh, with with Mr. Thompson here. And you know, our position was that, you know, once you get the charges against you dismissed, you've paved the way to hold the officer accountable. 
uh, if you can then prove that the officer fabricated evidence against you. And um, the position of the defendant in this case, represented by the city of New York, was that you, know, you have no right to hold the officer accountable if the charges against you are later dismissed, meaning it's all water under the bridge, all the injury that happened to you, all the consequences for your life, the detention is all kind of, you know, neither here nor there. And the, and the officer's immune for any sort of liability for um, the misconduct. And so heading into the argument, I was interested to hear what the court was going to make of these two different standards. But once we actually got into the argument, it seemed like a bunch of the justices were interested in sort of a different issue than the actual question presented we've been discussing. A lot of them were focused on whether the underlying claim that your client wants to press even exists at all. I'm wondering if that was, broadly speaking, your impression and how that all fits into the case. Yeah, you know, it's it's one of those cases where um, folks who are going to listen in, you know, I had my my family listening in and I had described to them what the case was about and they tuned in and they could hear my voice, but they were thinking, is this the case that, you know, he told me about? Because it did kind of go off in, in different directions. And that could be for any, you know, number of reasons. The justices were asking questions that were on their mind, things that they were having trouble getting over. Um, and, you know, some of those questions uh, may have been particular to one or two or three justices. Uh, and not really on the minds of others. And I think that's one really kind of interesting thing that's really lost. Let me say this, you know, it's great that the court is live streaming audio. I hope, I think there's no going back from that. I hope that'll stay forever. Um, but something's lost in that, right? Which is the, the in-person dynamic. If you're just listening to the audio, you don't see the body language of the different justices, um, which hopefully an advocate is picking up on and focusing on. And, and you know, you don't wanna to read too much into it by any means. But like any, um, in, you know, personal, in-person conversation, um, it's kind of human to pick up on those and try to gear the conversation uh, in the right direction uh, based on it. And so, you know, though there were questions coming from all sorts of directions uh, at the time, as an advocate, you're trying to have a conversation with all nine justices, not just the, the one who's asking you the question. Um, and so, you know, that's what at least was going on in my mind as I was getting these questions that maybe um, were, you know, not what I would have liked to have been talking about. Right. I had a question for you. We talked a little bit about how you prep for, um, you know, the format of the arguments. Wondering in your moot, uh, when you were being mooted, um, how did centaurs play into your preparation? And <laughs> what is the dangers of centaur smoking? Um, was this something you had studied? <laughs> Let's say someone is questioning a medical expert. And the question is, um, Dr., um, I'm going to ask you a question about the centaur. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll let you explain that one, but I'll say this: I'll, I'll say you know I that question was not posed to me. Uh, I was uh, you know just a uh, just an observer like the rest of you as it was being posed to the federal government. So you know we've been for the past um, several terms kind of looking at this issue of diversity in the Supreme Court, and I think we've tried um, to kind of pick up on you know the difference between male and female advocates uh, just because it's more of low-hanging fruit. It's a little easier to um, to answer that question rather than other kinds of diversity. But of course, other kinds of diversity are very important. And your team um, had focused on this. Is that right? Well, uh, you know, in it, it, it uh, our group at the MacArthur Justice Center is certainly, you know, very conscientious of this and very aware of problems of 
diversity in the legal profession and certainly in the Supreme Court bar, uh, where it's you know perhaps at its worst for a variety of reasons. Uh, and you know I'm proud to say this team was a team you know made up of completely uh, women uh, and people of color, uh, which is not what you ordinarily see. It was a big team, and it's not what you ordinarily see on briefs submitted uh, to the U.S. Supreme Court. And I think uh, I think that made our briefing better. Um, you know, the, the, the team was a bunch of wicked smart people, uh, and uh, I was really lucky to have them. They asked me, uh, sorry, justices, but they asked me better questions than the justices did in court <laughs> and prepared me uh, in every way that, you know, uh, an attorney would want to be prepared. So, uh, so, so, so definitely something that, you know, you know, we want to be a part of, uh, uh, of the change. And I think I, I hope that others uh, jump, jump in and start thinking about what they can do to have teams that uh, look a little bit different than the ordinary teams that appear in the court. Yeah, well, that's great. Um, we can, we will continue to watch out for that. That's something we're definitely keeping our eye on here at um, Bloomberg Law. And... Thanks, Amir, for coming on and talking about the case. It'll be interesting to see how this one turns out. Thank you both for having me. It's been nice to chat. Well, that was really interesting, although I'm sure a lot of our listeners are scratching their heads, wondering what um, we perhaps we have been smoking now that we're talking about smoking centaurs. Um, can you maybe tell us how this came up in the argument? Yeah, so it all stems from this issue about some justices being concerned with whether this underlying claim exists. And the federal government was arguing in this case, too, not just the New York Law Department. The Justice Department was arguing in support of Amir's client, Mr. Thompson, here. And during the assistant to the Solicitor General's argument in a colloquy with Justice Alito, Alito brought up a hypothetical about this smoking centaur. Uh, this is going to be a serious question, although it's going to sound fanciful. Um, let's say someone is questioning a medical expert, an expert on lung cancer. And the question is, um, Dr. Um, I'm going to ask you a question about a centaur, which is a creature that has the upper body of a human being and the lower body and the legs of a horse. And what I want to know is if a centaur smokes five packs of cigarettes every day for 30 years, does the centaur run the risk of getting lung cancer? What would the medical expert say to that? I think you'd say that's, that's a fanciful question that I, I can't answer. I think that's not this case for a couple of reasons, Your Honor. Well, I think because – Well, what, what should I do if I think there is no such thing as a Fourth Amendment malicious prosecution claim? I, well, assume that it exists. Assume that there is a centaur and the centaur is out in the woods smoking cigarettes like crazy. So I don't think. I mean, my favorite part is when Justice Alito explains what a centaur is. Um, I can't tell if he's like you know a real nerd and like well he's a real nerd, but if his like level of nerddom includes centaurs or if he had to look that up, and that's why he then gave us the definition. After all, the justices have passed on the current court. We'll eventually get the bench memo from his law clerk about centaurs. Anyway, so Kimberly, there were couple other, at least a couple other, heavy, interesting arguments during this sitting. One of them was in a state secrets case that I'm pretty sure is called Zubeda, but Chief Justice Roberts. We will hear argument uh, in case 2827, United States versus Zubedu. I was actually worried that I had the name wrong as I was 
tuning in. But then once his lawyer talked about it, I felt like I was on better ground. So Kimberly, just remind us what's going on in this case. Sure. So Abu Zubaydah is the first war on terror prisoner, and he is still being held at the U.S. military base at Guantanamo Bay. Now, Zubaydah says that before arriving at Guantanamo, he was tortured at black sites, CIA black sites abroad, including in Poland. And actually, this case concerns a Poland investigation, which is asking the U.S. government to turn over some information so they can kind of discover what the Polish government's role in all of this was. Um, So let me step back. There's actually a pretty extensive congressional report detailing uh, Zabeda's treatment, including being waterboarded some 80 plus times. Listeners may remember this. This is the, you know, um, the individual where we heard a lot of details of other kinds of torture as well, you know, hanging him upside down, keeping him awake for something like 11 days straight. Uh, But the government says that even though this information is pretty widely known, there's actually been some testimony by some government contractors, even though uh, that's the case, it would still harm national security if the government were to actually confirm that Poland actually allowed the U.S. to engage in torture um, within its borders. Now, that is a really broad assertion of the state secrets privilege, you know, given that even some Polish officials have acknowledged the country's role, including the former Polish president. Um, Yet most of the justices, um, although this one seemed to break down pretty ideologically, most of them seem inclined to allow the U.S. to assert privilege here. And, you know, this argument was really fascinating. I think it's one that could only have happened inside the courtroom. I think had the justices still been remote, we wouldn't have had the same kind of issues pop up. And I think in particular, there's this exchange uh, between Justice Gorsuch and the acting Solicitor General Brian Fletcher, who's filling in while we await the confirmation of Elizabeth Prelogger. Basically, Gorsuch wants to know, okay, you know, if the U.S. doesn't want to confirm or deny the existence of black sites, why doesn't it just let uh, Zabeda testify what happened to him? And so here's the exchange. It's pretty long, but um, we see here we have, you know, Justices Stephen Breyer, Sonia Sotomayor, and even Samuel Alito kind of getting in on this issue, um, which results in the government agreeing to kind of look into this issue further and provide some supplemental um, information. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Fletcher, I don't want to interrupt you later, so I'm just going to do it up front. Why not make the witness available? What is the government's objection to the witness testifying to his own treatment and not requiring any admission from the government of any kind? By the witness, you mean Abu Zubaydah? Right. So I, I was going to address this point. It goes to Justice Breyer's question about the conditions of his confinement right now. He is not being held incommunicado. He is subject to the same restrictions that apply to other similar detainees at Guantanamo. His communications are subject to security screening for classified information and other security risks, but he's able to communicate with his lawyers about his that, habeas That's proceeding. not really answering my question, I, I don't think, because I understand there are all sorts of protocols that may or may not in the government's view, uh, prohibit him from testifying. But I'm, I'm asking much more directly, will the government make the petitioner available to testify on this subject? We would allow him to communicate about this subject under the same terms as on anything else. The same terms. Look, I don't understand why he's still there after 14 years. It's a little hard to give him Hamdi. Uh, but assuming that isn't in this case, uh, why not do just what Justice Gorsuch says? 
Just say, hey, you want to ask what happened? Ask them what happened. And maybe this is special. So the, because the detainees at Guantanamo are all subject to a regime, a protective order in their hands. I'm not asking. I understand there are all sorts of rules and protective orders. I'm aware of that. I'm asking much more directly, and I, I just really appreciate a straight answer to this. Will the government make petitioner available to testify as to his treatment during these dates? I cannot offer that now because that's a request that has not been made, and so we have not taken that back to the folks at DOD. Well, gosh, been, this case has been litigated for years and all the way up to the United States Supreme Court, and you haven't considered whether that's an off-ramp that, that the government could provide that would obviate the need for any of this? Well, Justice Gorsuch, we considered the request that was put before the district court in the Ninth Circuit under Section 1782. Our position as to all communications by Abu Zubaydah is that he can communicate subject to security screening, which would include, and I, I just want to be clear, would include eliminating classified information. Which, so, which takes us right back to where we are. And, I, that, and, and it doesn't answer the question. And I, I guess will the government at least commit to answering uh, – informing this court whether it will or will not allow the petitioner to testify as to as to his treatment during these dates. If, if the court would like a direct answer to that question, of course. I personally would appreciate a direct answer to that question. Without the government invoking a state secret privilege to the testimony, inherent uh, in the question is, are you going to let him testify as to what happened to him those dates? And, and I think — the, the we would invoke the state secrets privilege always only over specific information, but I, w- I would tell you that whatever he proposes to do, we would want to apply the same sorts of screening that we're applying here to make sure that classified information is not released in the process of his testimony or in a written well, submission. You're, you're begging the question. I want, I think, Justice Gorsuch, and he can correct me if I'm wrong, we want a clear answer are you going to permit him to testify as to what happened to him those dates without invoking a state secret or other privilege? Yes or no? That's all we're looking for. Mr. Fletcher, you are here representing the government of the United States in a certain capacity. What do you understand to be the scope of your authority uh, as you stand before us here? to represent the legal position of the United States, but in doing that, it's important to me, as it always is, to make sure that I'm representing my clients with full consultation of what's being put before them. I understand the to, question. To represent the, the interests of the United States with respect to what? With respect to all matters. Here, the matters directly with, relevant With respect are, to all matters? I thought it would be res- with respect to this litigation. Correct. I'm sorry, Justice Leo. That's a, that's a better way to put it. And because this is not an issue that has been in this litigation up until now, I'm not prepared to make representations for the United States, especially on matters of national security. Justice Gorsuch, I understand your question. Uh, we'd be happy to respond. So, Kimberly, I was just listening into this one. You were in the courtroom for that exchange. Tell me if you saw this differently. It almost seemed to me like Fletcher wasn't ready for these types of questions that came up at the end of the argument. Right. And that's where you see, I mean, you know, this was during a rebuttal, um, which I thought was, you know, interesting to have such a substantive question come up during a rebuttal. And Justice Gorsuch really comes in and says, look, I'm just going to interrupt you now because, um, you know, 
I need to know the answer to this. Um, but that's actually, I think, why Justice Alito jumped in was really to kind of rescue Fletcher to say, you know, you're here in the capacity of representing the United States and its legal um, kind of arguments. And you're not the director of the CIA who can say, you know, yeah, we'll go ahead and waive kind of the restrictions we have on our Gitmo prisoners. So um, it does seem like he was caught off guard um, in that respect. But, um, you know, it, it happens from time to time that, you know, the justices ask a question and the advocates just end up filing supplemental briefing. Um, and I expect, you know, after Brian like phones up the CIA director, hey, what's going on? Anything new? By the way, um, Justice Gorsuch personally wants to know. Um, I'm sure he'll he'll let us know. But I'm, I imagine those conversations are already happening. So um, another case that I found really interesting was United States versus Cernayoff. This, of course, is the case of the Boston Marathon bomber. And the issue isn't specifically one about capital punishment. Instead, it's about, um, you know, what jurors knew uh, about the publicity uh, before they became jurors. But that issue did come up. Jordan, can you tell us a little bit about the argument here? Sure. So... We talked about this one on our deep dive preview with Willie J. And of course, this is happening against the backdrop of Biden running against the death penalty and Garland imposing an execution moratorium over the summer. The two legal issues were, as you said, this pretrial publicity issue, whether the trial judge did a good enough job in screening jurors for pretrial publicity. And the second issue of whether the judge should have let in evidence that Zokar Sharnaev's older brother Tamerlan, who did the bombing with him, also committed these other murders a couple years earlier in furtherance of this violent jihad. And uh, Sharnaev wanted this evidence in to go to his mitigation argument that he was really acting under the influence of his older brother. And the judge didn't let that evidence in, didn't let the defense further explore that evidence because there were some issues of how exactly it would come in and the evidence's reliability. And that second question, this evidence question, actually wound up coming more to the fore, both in the briefing right before the argument and during the argument itself. And this pretrial publicity issue was definitely still there, but it seems like this evidence issue sort of became the main issue, although both issues are certainly still in the case. And so, you know, the bottom line here is I think that heading into the argument, the court took the case so it could reimpose the death sentences and nothing happened during the argument that makes me think differently you know, I think perhaps one of the most interesting things that happened during the argument wasn't so much the the substantive questions on these legal issues, but it was actually Justice Barrett who asked. I think it was almost an hour into the argument. She had kind of my question, which I had asked Willie when we talked to him on the podcast of, what are we doing here? Mr. Fagan, I'm wondering what the government's end game is here. So the government has declared a moratorium on executions, but you're here defending his death sentences. And if you win, presumably that means that he is relegated to living under threat of a death sentence that the government doesn't plan to carry out. So I'm just having trouble following the point. Well, Your Honor, um, the administration continues to believe the jury imposed a sound verdict and that the Court of Appeals was uh, wrong to upset that verdict. If the verdict were to be reinstated eventually, which will require some further proceedings on remand, there'd then be a round of collateral review, some time for um, reviewing any clemency petitions. Within that time, uh, the Attorney General presumably can review the matters that 
are currently under review, such as the current ex- execution protocol. And um, what we are asking here is that the sound judgment of 12 of respondents' peers that he warrants capital punishment for his personal acts in murdering and maiming uh, scores of innocents and along with his brother, hundreds of innocents at the finish line of the Boston Marathon should be respected. So, Jordan, one thing that I thought um, was really interesting about the two cases that we just talked about, Zubeda um, and Cernayoff, is that, you know, I think most of the focus from this term has been on abortion, has been on gun rights, cases that we think are really going to divide the justice ideologically. But in these two cases as well, we really saw kind of this pretty what looks like it's going to be these six three cases on the underlying merits and particularly in the Cernayev case we saw Justice Kagan you know really pretty upset about the government's argument in this case and kind of flabbergasted that they're you know standing up for what the district court judge did here. I mean think about what you're just saying Mr. Fagan this court let in evidence about Tamerlane poking somebody in the chest this court let in evidence about Tamerlane shouting at people. This court let in evidence about Tamerlane assaulting a former student, a, a fellow student, all because that showed what kind of person Tamerlane was and what kind of influence he might have had over his brother. And yet this court kept out evidence that Tamerlane led a, 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 a crime that, com- that resulted in three murders. Um, was that kind of how, I mean, I was in the courtroom, so that's what it felt like to me, reading her body language. Is that how it felt, um, you know, listening in to the live stream as well? Yeah, I, I certainly noticed that too. And we even saw during a different exchange where Justice Kavanaugh was helping the government further its arguments. And, you know, people always talk about how the oral arguments are the justices having a conversation with each other through the advocates. But in this instance, Justice Kagan cut out the middleman and went straight for Justice Kavanaugh to kind of rescue her own point. And he was either he was either caught flat-footed or I think didn't want to maybe respond as forcefully as maybe he wanted to or he just didn't have anything that he could say. But I just want to make sure the premise, I mean, the premise yes. was assumed away. The premise was assumed away because that's the role of the jury. Well, I think it's important to discuss the district court's reasoning and the district Yeah, court's well, you know, maybe it is that he can just respond in the majority opinion that's going to come out probably 6-3 in uh, his favor. So Exactly. You know, and that's maybe where some of the frustration comes from, too, is that the justices and the minority, which this won't be the first or last case like that, they know that there's nothing they can do. Yeah, I just, again, I thought it was interesting that, you know, we've all been really focused on, you know, abortion and guns and maybe affirmative action. Um, looks like even, you know, all the other stuff that's on the docket is, might might be dividing the justices as well. So that, you know, all this talk of like, you know, a 3-3-3 three, three, three court or, you know, the conservatives not flexing their muscles. I mean, we've said it before that this term is really one where the rubber's going to hit the road on, you know, whether or not there's any kind of slow walking uh, the courts move to the to the right. For sure. Another case that's even further under the radar, which we'll talk about coming up for the November sitting, is Shin against Ramirez, which we don't have time to get into now, but that's going to be another case that I think is headed for another 6-3 on maybe a more technical issue, but which is going to be super important. But we'll just have to leave it at that for now because we've 
packed a lot into this one already. <laughs> we have. So we'll be back next week with a deep dive into that gun case that the justices are going to hear during their November sitting. This is something we've been working on all summer. So um, we're looking forward to releasing it to the listeners. Until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Thanks for listening. My name is David Schultz, and I'm here to announce On the Merits, a new podcast from Bloomberg Law that brings you everything you need to know about the biggest legal stories of the week, coupled with smart interviews and analysis on a variety of topics, such as the incoming Biden administration's judicial priorities. So I think diversity is is kind of the watchword here. We'll also keep our eyes on the Supreme Court. Now everyone is on Briar Watch. We're all watching to see when or if Justice Breyer is going to step down. You'll hear voices and perspectives from across the legal industry, including reporters and editors, attorneys, legal scholars, general counsel. But lest you think this podcast is all just news you can use, from time to time we stumble on a court docket or legal opinion that, for whatever reason, just piques our interest. And he started this opinion, 224th of it, Citing the Passchendaele battle is one of the largest battles of World War One. Um, that seems like a strange way to start off an opinion on corporate law. You can download On the Merits wherever you get your podcasts.